Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to We Move Through Stormy Weather, a fish podcast where we compare and contrast songs and the evolution of their jamming styles throughout the band's career. My name is Ryan Storm, and today I am joined by Joel Vizzitti. A Toronto-based keyboardist and composer, Joel is a proud Winnipeg export with a passion for the keyboards. As a busy working musician in Toronto, he has worked with a number of celebrated world-class musicians. In 2015, he co-founded the trio JB's Boogaloo Squad, who have since worked their way up through the national club circuit, recently headlining at major jazz festivals throughout Ontario and Quebec, including Toronto's International Jazz Festival in 2018. Their 2019 album, Going to Market, has reached number 6 on the U.S. Campus Jazz Radio chart, as well as number 29 on Jazz Week's chart for U.S. Commercial Radio. Joel has also been the keyboardist for Toronto-based fish tribute band The Lizards since its inception in 2013. Joel, you can say hi. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Thanks so much for being on today. I'm really, really excited to, uh, to talk some fish and keyboards, of course, with you. Yeah, yeah um, me too. Yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about how you got into fish and your first show and all that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I will say that, um, it's funny that I'm in a fish tribute band in a lot of ways, because while I do love fish, I would say if you removed the fact that I'm in a fish tribute band, like from my resume as a fish fan, like I don't really, I wouldn't really get a lot of respect in the community. Like I've seen eight shows, which, to well, little, I have you beat as of three days ago. So. Yeah, which like, you know, considering I've been listening to them since, you know, 2005 is really not a lot of shows. Um, but it's because like, so the way it kind of worked for me is uh, I was in high school. I lived in Winnipeg. Uh, my friends and I all loved classic rock. And we were like, you know, looking for where does this culture and this kind of music still exist in our time? which is just inevitably going to lead you to the jam world, right? Inevitably. So so we all got into fish, like right, basically right when 
they broke up. Like it was like great timing. Yeah. Like we, it was like 2005 and we were like, Oh, this band fish is amazing. And then whatever. So, um, the first time I saw, well, the first time I saw fish was in 2011 actually, but the first time I saw Trey was summer of 2006. And I saw Trey and Mike play with the Benevento Russo brothers at uh, a jam band festival that no longer exists called 10,000 lakes, which was in, uh, in Minnesota. Um, so we would like drive down from Winnipeg and like camp out and stuff when we were, that would have been my like senior year of high school. Um, so the one, like the one like stat I have in the lizards, like, cause we're always like, like, you know, how many shows is rich scene and Ben scene. Uh, those are guys in the lizards. The one stat I have that's kind of cool is I'm the person who saw Trey the closest to him being arrested. <laughs> <laughs> cause I saw him like literally, I think it was like, two or three months before or something. Right. Um, but uh, yeah. And then I saw, so for me, it was like, I was really into fish in high school and then I got really into jazz and moved to Toronto to go to jazz school and fish kind of went away for me for a while. Like um, I would say from, you know, 2006 to 2009, 10, like I wasn't really listening to them. I was like, a huge jazz nerd. I was practicing, you know, five, six hours a day. I was just like all in on like music school and like my craft as a jazz pianist and whatever. And then when fish got back together in 2009, like I bought joy and I was kind of like, Oh yeah. Like listening to this band is just really fun. And, and then um, I went to see them for the first time in 2011 at uh, Darien Lake. Um, but even then, like, because I got into fish in Winnipeg, like I didn't really know anything about the culture of the band. Like, like I didn't know like which songs were more common or more rare. I didn't know, like, I, I didn't know people who like followed the set list of every show. Like I just, me and my friends liked this band and we listened to them, but it wasn't like our interest in fish wasn't any different than say our interest in you know, other bands from that time, like, I don't know, like the Radiohead or the Red Hot Chili right, of course. or whatever. And like, so, I actually listen to a lot of studio albums. Right. Which yeah. that, that's, that's a difference from a lot of fish fans, obviously. Yeah. What, what was, um, how did the, how did the lizards get started? Um, so the lizards got started because, uh, fish played in Toronto in 2013 and our guitarist Rich was there and he had the idea to start a tribute band. And I believe what happened is he contacted Ben, our drummer, who was in right away. And then he actually put a message out on Facebook, like just a Facebook post saying, like, does anyone know a keyboard player who would want to be in this band? Like, need to like jamming, need to like classic rock, need to have mediocre vocal abilities, like, you know, (laughs) whatever. And, um, And someone mentioned me because I guess like it was my friend Matt Giffen, who is a pianist that I went to school with and I guess like he and I had talked about fish once or something you know um, and that was all it took and like Rich Rich texted me and I was like yeah I'm super into it like it's great yeah you know like I I just love because I'm like my background is like pretty heavily in jazz like I just love improvising and to me the idea that I got I would get to be in a tribute band but where the majority of the show is just us improvising was like 
that just sounded like a dream to me, you know? Yeah. And, and for those of you who haven't uh, heard of or have, haven't listened to the Lizards, they're absolutely my favorite uh, fish tribute band out there. And they're able to, they capture uh, the energy of uh, a, a 1990s, a late 1990s fish uh, with some absolutely incredible jamming. So definitely check them out. Oh, thanks, man. Um, I think if we have, I think if there's something that makes us different from the other fish tribute bands, I would say it's actually the fact that we're not all like the most diehard fish fans. Right. Especially our bass player. Like, I think all of us are musicians first and fish fans second, because like we're all professional musicians who play other gigs, play other styles of music. And I think it makes, it makes it so that like, we're not so much trying to be fish as we are trying to be, us playing fish music if that makes right. sense like yeah you know and not to say that that makes us better or worse than other fish tribute bands but i do think it makes us different yeah i yeah. know and it's and it's really cool to you know watch you guys uh you know you may not be like the most diehard fish pants but watching you nail all the compositions like foam or fluffhead or yam or stuff right. like that is it's really really cool so yeah. yeah i'm just too like um that's i just have that like perfectionist part of me where like when i'm learning those songs i'm like i'm like no like we can't half-ass this like you right. know it's and be quick quick keyboard nerd question did you have um you know your roads and your clav and all that gear before you joined the lizards or did you get those no. instruments for the band no so the lizards as the band developed we all just kept buying more and more gear like if you had been at our first show at the comfort zone in 2013 i was playing two keyboards Right. I was playing a Nord stage and I was playing a Korg SV1 and like there was no analog gear on stage. There was there was no nothing. But very quickly, like Rich started buying all the pedals, Ben started buying all the drums. And we just uh, we used to call it the gear wars. And like each time we played a show, it was so nerdy. But like each time we played a show, we would calculate who had purchased the most gear since the last (laughs) show. Last show. And whoever had done that won the Gear Wars for that particular show. So, like, pretty quickly, though, I bought, like, first I bought the Rhodes. Then I bought the organ keyboard, like the the Nord C2D for the the keyboard nerds out there who want to know. Probably just you and me. Um, (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, and then I bought the Clav. Um, I always had the Mofo synth, which was never really the right synth for the band. It was just, like, the synth that I had. And uh, then... And it worked. It it worked to an extent, but now that I have the profit, it's like it's better. Which even though I know Paige doesn't play a profit, it's still just He like, did you know what? Summer twenty eleven he had a profit in the room. Really? So, Which one? Yeah. Do you have the profit twelve or um I believe so. <laughs> Sorry, give me nice. give me did one I, second. I'll, I'll skunk, pull up my rig you already. <laughs> well I'll pull up my rig rundown and I'll look at what it is. Uh I definitely I definitely wouldn't know. That's cool that he had one. <laughs> it is Profit 08. Oh, nice. Yeah. Profit 08. So yeah. I have over here the Profit Rev 2, which is, um, it's like a slightly simpler version of the Profit 8, but uh, pretty well, pretty similar in a lot of ways. It, they both have eight oscillators. Well, that's awesome. Okay. Enough keyboard nerdy for now. Let's get yeah. into the song uh, yeah. that you picked. Why don't you talk a little bit about why you picked uh, Halley's Comet? Um, I know, obviously, Simple was your first choice, but that's already been claimed for an upcoming episode. Right. I mean, it wasn't so <laughs> much it wasn't so much about the tune as I was trying to find a jam that uh, encapsulates 
sort of like what was great about 1.0 jamming. And I actually think what we've ended up with here is something that really illustrates some key differences between definitely let's, let's say 1.0 jamming and, and 3.0 jamming because like i mean i have 4.0 depending on how you look at it yeah depending on who you ask <laughs> right but um i think that like what well i was making these notes and what i really felt like was there's so like i i am definitely like someone who likes 1.0 fish better than 3.0 fish Mm-hmm. Um, not that I don't love them both, but, and I think what I'm seeing here in these two jams really does illustrate it because like, so I have some notes here. Like, for example, I feel like there's just more patience in the first jam. It takes longer to settle, but also like, there's just more, um, there's more like music going on in a subtle way. Like, um, interesting. Yeah. So, like, I really like, as an example, the key change that happens 10 minutes into the jam. Because yes. I missed it. We, all, wait. First... we didn't even say what version this is. This is uh, Hampton 97, 11-22-97, the yeah. legendary Howleys. Exactly. And so I kind of feel like in the 3.01, like, they're all on their gear right away. There's cool sounds going on. There's cool synth stuff going on. But there's less going on kind of under the hood musically for me. So, mm-hmm. like, they start out in F, and at around the 10-minute mark, like, Mike's been playing this sort of ostinato on bass that keeps landing on an F. He's, I What's exactly. an ostinato for those of us who are not? An ostinato is just a fancy music term for a repeating pattern. Got so, it. like, if you're playing the same thing kind of over and over again, like, he's playing something like... Or something like that. And he's mm-hmm. doing little, he's make, doing his mic thing where he's kind of got a part and he's making subtle changes to it here and there. But like, he's sort of like, he's sort of like riffing around a, a motif or an ostinato. But he changes the note he's always landing on from F to G. And what I really like about the way Fish improvised is I feel like the way I think about it in my head is that someone makes an offering. And then yeah. someone else in the band can choose to accept it or not. So 10 minutes. Yeah. In, and I've, I've heard that a lot, especially this past fall tour. I don't know if you've been listening to any of the shows that have been happening, but there, you know, there've been modulations all over the place. Yeah. Like uh, on, on the sat this past Saturday night's show in the 15 minute, no men and no man's land. I think there were five or six modulations in it. Right. And it's cool to listen to, you know, Trey might suggest a modulation or Paige might suggest it. And sometimes they all go for it and sometimes they don't. Right. So there you can like, you can hear it. So, so they're in F like, I'll, I'm going to get like real music nerdy. They're in F mixolydian. Right. And then Mike starts playing that G, which could just be a note in that key. And for a while, they kind of just let Mike play that G. But then Trey plays at like a few seconds later, maybe 15 seconds later, Trey plays a B natural. Mm-hmm. And that B natural is Trey accepting the modulation G. G. Yes. And from that point on, they like make this subtle shift where you kind of like, for me, the first time I was listening, I was like, oh, when did they get in this key? Right. But then later on, you can hear Paige suggesting a modulation to B flat when he gets on the piano at around like 1235. Mm-hmm. And I wrote here in my notes, Mike says no. Mike, <laughs> like Mike just like stays in G. Yeah. And I think that 
in in this whole jam, there's so much like subtle tension to the fact that like fish are masters of of embracing attention and staying in it. Whereas like I feel like a lot of musicians, even like very accomplished musicians when it comes to improvising, they default to always saying yes. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's like, oh, are you suggesting a new key? Okay, I heard that. Let's go. And the beauty of fish is that they don't always say yes. And sometimes they live in that tension where they're between keys. They're not in a defined place. And it makes it that much more satisfying when they settle. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, you bring up a lot of good points about this one. The, the version I picked, um, you know, obviously looking at uh, Halley's Comets uh, in the modern era, there aren't nearly as many to choose from sure. uh, that hit this level. But I picked uh, the uh, Hershey version uh, from this past summer, 81121. Um, this jam to me is uh, the best Halley's we've seen since uh, they returned in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, you know, the, the point you made about the patience in the Hampton one is actually, um, I think they're a little bit too patient in this jam. It's something I, you know, I've, I'm, again, one of my many takes that I'm going to get crucified for on the internet. <laughs> yeah, here. We've talked about this before. Yeah. You, yeah. The, especially the like 97 era. Like you don't, you don't like when they're just kind of sitting on something and you feel like 3.0, they're a more mobile jamming unit. Yeah. And, and one thing I notice here uh, in, in the Hershey one, especially, you know, the Hampton one is very driven by Trey. Um, a lot of a lot of what happens is him shifting mm-hmm. the mood with something he does. Like obviously you mentioned Mike uh, suggests that initial modulation, but Trey's the one that is like, okay, let's do that. Um, For and, sure. you know, that's how that's how it takes off. And a lot of the mood shifts in the jam are because of something that Trey does. In, in the Hershey one from this year, you know, it's uh, Paige is obviously way out front. Fishman is absolutely driving as supposed to. I feel mm-hmm. in the Hampton one, his drumming still incredible, but he sits on a very similar groove for the majority of the jam, which isn't a bad thing. It serves this jam really, really well. I just think what he's doing in uh the Hershey version is just obviously they're all more lead players now I think than they were 24 years ago well I think I think what you could say about about them is that they used to be like fish used to be a dictatorship and now they're a republic you know like they're they're an extremely democratic band and it's funny because like to me this debate doesn't really come down to like what's better or worse. It does just ultimately come down to what you like. Right. And I think I've always, I've always said this, but I like, um, I like things in music that I would never like in politics, for example. Like I don't mm-hmm. think dictatorships are good in the real world, but I yeah. actually like what dictatorships do in music in, in terms of like, I feel like when one person is in charge, everyone, everyone's like, it's just like efficient and everyone knows their place. I actually like, I love what Mike and Paige do in the Hampton show because yeah. it's clear that Paige is, I'm sorry. It's clear that Trey is ultimately going to decide where things go, but his decisions are all being informed by his bandmates and yeah. the choices they make within that structure still produce something really cool. Like for example, at, 1715 of the jam i have all my notes here Mm -hmm. um like they they go to b flat and they start doing that shot 
kind of where they're all hitting that big B flat. Yeah. And, but Paige is still on the clav and he's playing this stuff that keeps them in like a Lydian mode, which is like a, a major scale with a sharp four, if anyone's interested in what I'm saying. <laughs> but, uh, and like, I just love that. Okay. So obviously like Paige wasn't able to decide that they were going to start doing this B flat thing, but he gets to color it in a really interesting way still. And sometimes the, like the really democratic approach that fish has now it it lacks that like that fire and that like focus of like Trey just being like I'm like I'm taking you all on my back and we're going somewhere you know yeah I've I've heard the I've heard the uh, metaphor used that just you know he's just whipping out his dick in the middle of the jam <laughs> that's yeah. what we're doing <laughs> well that does happen I would say in the middle of the jam I think mm-hmm. they're they're around fourteen minutes like Trey's youth really shows and you can, I can really hear him being like, this isn't interesting enough. I need to start shredding. And that happens about halfway through the jam. Yeah. I I will say it happens much more smoothly in this jam than in some of the other big fall 97 jams where he does it like the 1119 Wolfman's right. Uh, There's a moment in, in that jam where he just kind of abruptly starts shredding and it doesn't really work with, you know, the other band members aren't ready for it. Yeah, um, I agree. But in in this jam, it works. It works well, I, I think. And, you know, you know, while Trey is still up front, uh, the other guys you mentioned are playing their support roles so well. Like that moment where they drop into that different kind of groove around 15 and a half minutes um, where Trey and Paige are both playing these staccato notes and Paige yeah. is playing like the, the, the muted clav. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's a really cool moment of interplay uh yeah i love that part i love that part too and yeah i agree with you there's always going to be like good and bad things about different approaches right and i think there's always going to be times in 1.0 where trey kind of can spoil a moment by needing to needing to like kick it into that gear as opposed to letting it happen and then i do also think there's times in three or 4.0 where where a jam really needed someone to take the reins and because no right. one does, the jam just kind of goes. Yeah, yeah, or just doesn't doesn't reach a point that it maybe could have. Right. I I did want a a really cool moment of um, interplay in my version uh, that I found, or a kind of you know difference than like what Trey says goes, and the other band members kind of asserting themselves. Um, at around seven and a half or so, Trey uh, uses his like synth really sharp envelope filter sound yeah. uh, to to bring the jam back down a bit. And then at around 7.40, Paige goes from whirly to piano and just brings the jam right back up. Yeah. Um, which is something that, you know, you wouldn't have seen in, uh, in 97.
I think Paige's work especially, um, you know, I, as I've, I've talked about, I don't remember if we mentioned it uh, in the last episode, but this year, um, you know, Mike, while he's still his insane bass playing self, has really kind of faded into the background a little bit mm-hmm. because of how much the other three guys stepped up their game. And it, it's really interesting. I think Mike is, you know, doing some really cool stuff uh, in this jam, like his his uh, bass synth effects uh, starting at around, uh, like right at the beginning at around six minutes at 15 uh, to kind of, he's playing a more supportive role this year than he has uh, in the last few years. I don't know if yeah. you heard that as well. No, I would, I would agree with that. And I think, yeah, he's really becoming just like the sort of Zen master in the band almost, you know? Um, and no, I, I totally agree with you about all that, all that stuff. I think Paige, Paige really shines in this, uh, in this Hershey jam in a way that he doesn't really get to in pretty basically all of 1.0, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's cool to see, I guess I still just think Trey was just such a, I mean, he still is such a great musician, but like he just had so much to say in the nineties. Right. You know? And, and I think, and I just love, every minute of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he really, he really built a band that complimented him. Whereas I think, I think if fish had tried to be the democratic thing that they are now in the nineties, I don't know if it would have worked. I don't think so either. I think, yeah. I think Trey needed to go through the, like, you know, the, the more democratic approach as a result of his uh, getting clean and everything. And yeah, uh, the evolution that's happened in 3.0, uh, you know, that was necessary. I think the band of 25 years ago wasn't ready for that. Yeah. Uh, I, and you hear it. I, I've been reading these uh, write-ups of uh, fall 1996 concerts that uh, this guy has been doing on their 25th anniversaries mm-hmm. and talking about how Trey's percussion rack that he got uh, at the end of 95 was there as a way for him to kind of step back and let the other band members lead. Right. And in fall 96, how, you know, when Trey hits the percussion rack, Page isn't really at a point where he's ready to lead the jam. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of flounders going from keyboard to keyboard, trying to, you know, come right. up with ideas. And, and in this Hershey version, you know, you see Page 25 years later, um, mm-hmm. right out front, you know, leading it all. And I mean, the highlight of this jam to me is Page's whirly work. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, just... Especially after like 10 minutes, like, one of my notes is just page whirly. Yes. With lots of exclamation marks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I just, he didn't, he didn't come into his own, not even like in his ability on the piano, but more just in his confidence. Yeah. I think, um, which is like, I mean, it's not something that's as easy to develop as, you know, technical ability that you can just develop through practicing, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm sure like kind of always being under the thumb of, of Trey was like, something that was like difficult to manage for him. And, you know, probably the hiatus was important for Paige's development too, in a lot of ways, you know? I I agree. And I, I think one thing that I think is, is missing from, you know, the Hershey Hallies that is a big part of this year's sound is his synth work. Uh, yeah. You don't really see a lot of that here, but there, there is some amazing synth work for him in the Hampton Hallies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very textural. That's the, for those of you who are I, wondering, it's the Yamaha CS60. I love, 
I love his synth work in in Haley's and I, I mean in the Hampton one. And I'm I'm glad I picked it because that was also kind of why I picked that simple was that I think I think a lot of people think of Paige as like 3.0 work as he's the synth master then. And what I actually really like about Paige on the synths in 1.0 is that his synth work is like less worked out. Like mm-hmm. I, I can I can kind of I feel like when you hear him get on the synth in the 90s, you're hearing him kind of testing the waters and sort of like trying yeah. stuff. Well, Whereas, especially here, he's only had the synth in his rig since the beginning of the summer of that. Exactly. Year. So he's still feeling out, uh, you know, what its role in the band is and how he's going to use it. Yeah. And the like right when they, they get in that bliss section and it's very spacey for a long time and Trey's just kind of noodling, but then they kind of like hit this big sort of Nirvana moment around 2035 and Paige brings back the synth sound. He was, he hasn't been using for, you know, a while. And it just like, everything just locks in in that moment. And it's because he chose that moment to get back on the synth. I think. Yeah, and I I, th- I think at that point it also kind of turns into around 21 minutes. It kind of turns into a little bit of a wingsuit jam. Obviously, yeah. the song wouldn't exist for a very long time, but it it sounds like they could drop back into that song at that point perfectly. Totally. But then he does something, and I'm going to get like keyboard technical again, and like mm-hmm. get all your listeners to turn off the podcast. But both <laughs> in, both in that simple jam and in this one, he starts messing around with the LFO on the synth. Which I don't what really is the hear. LFO? So um, an LF, LFO stands for low frequency oscillator. But essentially what it means is you can have, a, like you can take an aspect of your synth sound, like say the high end part of your synth, or even just the volume of your synth, go, and you can sort of make it rapidly go like from high to low to high to low at varying, at, at, like that. At varying speeds. So you hear him, he's got his LFO set to the uh, cutoff pitch or frequency knob. And it's it's when the synth, instead of just like a solid tone of like, nah, it's going like, kind of. Yeah, and, can... and people will be familiar with that because, I mean, he does that a lot on the CS60. It's very prevalent yeah. in 1.0 and early 3.0 as well. Yeah, exactly. And I I mean, for me, I just love that sound. It's just a personal taste thing. But like, in terms of his synth work in general, like, I think a strength of his 3.0 synth playing is that he's he really knows those instruments now and he's got his sounds yeah. that he likes to use. Um, and I guess there's just a part of me that likes that sort of... I liked when he was exploring more, I guess. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's like he's he's really got a command of the instrument and he knows what he wants to do and he does it. Yeah, I, like, I mean, I I think it's cool now because, you know, three of them have synth tones yeah. in their arsenal. And so, it, you know, sometimes you've got to pick out who's playing what. Um, yeah, you know, it's, like, a, it's a really tr- synthy band now. Very. I, I think it's really cool, though, because it, it you know, it shows their evolution. Like if, if they stop trying to innovate with their rigs you know, 10 years ago, totally. Um, you know, the, the, they don't have as many directions to go and develop. And it's really cool to see the band still so hungry to develop more and keep going and, you know, find new places uh, yeah, 38 they, years into their career. They just kind of refuse to be a legacy act. And I think like, I just have the utmost respect for that. Like, yeah. because it's totally something they could do at any point. 
I will say, have have you listened or have you like been following uh, the fall tour uh, the last couple of weeks? Um, a little bit, but I got to say, I haven't been listening to every show for sure. I've just like gigs have kind of come back in Ontario right. right now, and I'm just like I'm just like super busy playing. And, right. Well, well, yeah. one of the things that they've been doing, you know, the last week and a half that they've been on tour again is kind of throwing conventional set list placement of songs out the window. Right. You know, we've had uh last week one of the the first show of the tour had a hood as the second song of the show right um I sunday night sunday night in la we got a type two yem as the second song in the show that's like um, 90 95 vibes or something like yeah, yeah. Like 25 <laughs> minute down with disease opener um you know mid first set slave like it's just anything can happen at any time and it's just yeah it's really really cool because you know this far in they're not just going and playing the hits from hoist Totally. Uh, and no, yeah, I'm... just like giving you your your chalk dust set to closer or I'm sorry, right. not chalk dust, uh, slave to the traffic light or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And like, that's essential. That's why people keep following this band around is like they when they're they're at their best when they're cultivating that feeling of anything could happen tonight. Yeah. And, yeah. Not, and, I, like, I... and not like, OK, here comes set one character zero closer, you know, like. Which, I mean, they still do that sometimes. Yeah. But. <laughs> but as long as they don't do it all the time, it's fine. Yeah. I think one thing I, like we're always talking about in making our set list, and I'm always hammering Rich about, is I'm like, if, you're, if you never do what's expected, then you're also predictable. Right. You know what I mean? It's like... Sometimes you got to give that character zero closer. Yeah, you have to. Because you have to... In order to... In order to defy expectations, you have to establish them. Right. Right? So it's like, if if it's just chaos, then it's just chaos. But if if you have songs that are somewhat more commonly set closers, then it's interesting when they're not, you mm-hmm. know? Right. Uh, yeah. I think, t- so for the Lizards, do you guys write a set list before or does Rich call them? No. We used to, we used to have set lists early on when we didn't know as many songs and mm-hmm. like when like, like there was a there was a good like I would say the first two to three years of the band where every time we played a show we were entirely playing songs we hadn't played before. Oh, because it was like we learned a whole show of music and then next show let's learn another whole show of music. But then we got to a point where we just have this repertoire and now and that's pretty much when we started touring the U.S. and playing more shows. It was like we can't have set lists for every show like. Speaking of tour in the U.S., do you guys have any tour dates coming up? So uh, there's some big announcements coming very soon. I'm not sure I can actually confirm anything just yet, but it's looking like we're going to be leaving the country in December. If you're in the Northeast in December, watch out. Yeah. Those are coming. Stay tuned to their social media. Looking at some New York State dates, some Vermont dates, possibly even some Ohio dates, some massachusetts and pa dates so not sure exactly what's going to happen yet but we're coming down for sure awesome awesome anyway sorry back to what you were saying about the oh, set list. oh yeah no just like we talk about we might have a bit of a conversation about like openers before we go on like what do you guys mm-hmm. want to start with um or just like are there any songs you guys really want to play in this show and we'll have a bit of a conversation but once we're on stage it's it's just rich you know awesome yeah yeah it's, it's cool to have that go-to and i know you know uh I, i've seen you guys i think 
I've seen one full Lizards concert, and then I saw the first set of one when I was like 14. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just it's it's really cool to watch you guys on stage because it's clear like do you guys you know it's clear you guys all practice the music a lot on your own, but do you guys have lots of you know practice sessions whether you're just jamming or rehearsing all the material together in advance of the show? Yeah, um, we definitely rehearsed more in the early days than we do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still rehearse quite a bit. Like if we have a show coming up, like we're going to rehearse, you know, three or four times for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point we're not really rehearsing jamming. Um, right. it was something like that was important early on. Like we had to figure out like, how, how do we do this and how, how to do it? Yeah. And like, and also like, there's a lot of, um, like there's actually a lot of like structural, logic to fish jamming and it's different for different songs right like mm-hmm. like you can't just say it's all jamming because like an ocelot jam is very diff like is often very different than say a twist jam and right. like and there's certain jams like harry hood or slave to the traffic light or whatever where like not that we have to be locked into this but there is something that audiences are kind of expecting it to do mm-hmm. or like reba or something like so, so we kind of have terminology that we've developed where like some jams we call green light jams. Yeah. Meaning anything goes, it, it can change keys, grooves, tempos, whatever. And then there's, and then there's jams that aren't like green light jams. They're like, they sort of have, they have an objective that we're trying to achieve. Right. Like hood, yeah. Hood, slavery, but stuff like that. Exactly. I, I, I like that, you know, you've created this distinction for the band. Um, that's a cool thing because also I, you know, I like a lot of people believe that those songs are best when they're just extended type one jams yeah, uh, and, and taking them out, you know, type two isn't necessarily, you know, the best thing for those what we're looking for. No type type one jamming. Like I think really has its place. And mm-hmm. if anything, it's like, it's funny. Cause you have this, you have this podcast that's sort of about comparing like nineties, two thousands fish to modern day fish. Yeah. And it's fun. Like if there's, if there's an issue I have with modern day fish type two jamming is at the very bottom. Like, and it's more that I like the things that I miss about nineties fish are more like the type one jamming that you don't really get in the same way anymore. Right. Like I would say, I often think about it as like when, when people are comparing two things and saying one is better than the other. I feel like we're usually comparing the best that those things can be. Yes. And saying, well, the best that this thing can be is up here. And the best that this thing can be is down here. But there's a really important thing. And I think about this with my own playing. And when I used to be like, when I'm always like working and practicing and stuff, it's like, you can be working on how good your best is, but you can also be working on how good your worst is. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the way I feel about fish now is I think their best is still just as good as it's ever been. Like when they're at their best, it's as good as any show from any year. But I feel like fish used to be so good, even on a bad night. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel that way about them anymore. Right. I feel like the, I feel like when they have a night where they're not really jamming, it's not really a great night. Right. I, I will agree that type one jams definitely peaked sometime in the mid nineties. I think that, you mm-hmm. know, them at the height of their, uh, just chops in terms yeah. of anything like that, you know, may not be 
the greatest improvisationally. And I do think they definitely lost a lot of the type one fire, um, you know, sometime between 2013 to 2019 or so. Yeah. Um, you know, the, a that. lot of the jams were not as strong. Um, I, th- I think it's, it's directly tied as well to, even though the band has become more democratic, it's still Trey's band. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, uh, if Trey's having a bad night, it's not going to be yeah. a very good show. But like if Mike's having a bad night, it's not going to affect it as much Yeah, because at the end of the day, Trey is out front and, you know, in a song like, uh, in a song like run like an antelope, uh, or something like that, you know, Trey is the one that's really driving that type one jam. And I, th- I think, you know, the, him sitting alone with his guitar for a year and a half really helped, um, with the type one, uh, you know, right. playing like the composed sections and the jams from this year, um, have re- like you know, it's the best we've seen him since uh, he did all the practicing for Fairly Well in 2015. Right. Yeah, which is it's nice to see. And um... I'm I'm hoping this isn't a one-off, and I'm hoping he, you know, sees how much better it is when he's really practiced, and this continues yeah. next year. It'll always it'll always ebb and flow, right? And I right. mean. I, I think it's just the nature of it. He's going to, he's going to have times in his life where he's more interested in other things, you know? Yeah. And, um, it is what it is. I still love fish, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I will say, you know, I've never seen them having more fun on stage than the past couple of years. Um, yeah. you know, and, and they've said it themselves. Like, you know, Trey said last week at a show, like 2021 has been their favorite year. Um, I, th- I think it's just, so many things in the band, like, you know, the dem I think they're all happier um together with the demo- democratic style of jamming, you know. For sure. I think they also um, you know, since the breakup, I think they've also had a policy of like not critiquing each other's uh playing or jamming. I think really Mike is the only one that really uh openly at least uh will go back and talk about jams that they've played. You know, you never right. really hear um Trey or Paige or Fishman really going back um, and talking about like, oh, like this was something I really liked. This was something that wasn't great. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen, but like Mike will frequently make after a tour, he'll make a playlist of some of his favorite jams. Right. Um, You know, like he said, his favorite jam from the Baker's Dozen uh, a few years ago, which was the Sense and Subtle Sounds, which is one of my favorites as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just interesting to look at the difference between not only um, in the bands playing on stage, but how, you know, we perceive them just, you know, when they're not playing their instruments, I think, I think there's more, there's more, uh, emotion happening on stage from them. Like, you know, I think Trey had this shit eating grin all the time in the nineties. Like I'm about to rip your face off with this guitar solo, but now there's just more pure joy coming from all of them. I think, I think, yeah. And I think that's a really important, like, thing to recognize is that like we're watching people who are like really healthy and yeah. like and there's a lot of love and they've probably dealt with maybe some resentment issues that may have existed they've dealt with substance abuse issues and like and you know i don't like i don't want anyone to be like unhappy or unhealthy or living a a lifestyle that's not good for them because it produces a musical outcome that I like, you know, like I would way rather 
that like they're making music from a place that's good for them because I think that's ultimately good for everyone. Right. Like, yeah. like I think the scene, I think the scene is a lot healthier in a lot of ways too. And, and I'm sure like just who they are as people now is a big part of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, and I, I think, you know, musically as well, going back to the musical side of things, uh, the way they kind of, you know, they did, flounder a little bit the first bunch of years of 3.0 you're kind of struggling with uh you know setless construction and i think Mm -hmm. trey being more hesitant to dive back into really deep and long jams Um, and sometime around you know 2013 they kind of rediscovered that place um and didn't really start hitting it consistently again until 2015 to 2017 ish and i i think there's a big difference in you know obviously uh 10 years ago like if you look at a tour like fall 2010 um there's not really much in the way of crazy long jamming but the 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 playing is tight you know the type one energy that you were talking about is there and there's lots of antics and fun and stuff and so that's still considered a great tour Mm -hmm. of the era despite the fact that the only song to break 20 minutes in the year of 2010 was yen right you know yeah Yeah, they just weren't and i yeah and it's total. It just totally makes sense, and it's just, it's really inspiring to see how Fish just never forces it, right? You know, like even though you, you know they know that's what the fans want, and they know that's what the expectations are, like they, they just don't, they just don't force it if it's not supposed to be happening. And yeah, and even when they, even when they do force it for a gimmick like Jam Night at the Baker's Dozen, right? Um, it's you know not because they're doing it for the fans they're doing it because they want to like you know troll the fans pretty much yeah like doing something like jamming out sample in a jar on on jam night like if you watch the the video of it trey is just like like just again that shit-eating grin just yeah as the crowd goes wild for it yeah he's like there's like a there's definitely like a prankster in him like a little a little kid who just loves in all of them you know yeah and um yeah, I totally agree. And like, I'm like the way they came back to things in 2009, like this is totally just me speculating, but mm-hmm. I know a little bit about like the process some people go through for sobriety. And like a big part of it is the, like one of the, one of the 10 steps I know or whatever is like accepting a higher power, like accepting mm-hmm. that you don't have power over this thing. And I would imagine that's going to change your musical approach because if you've been the, the, the like uber confident, like, uh, you know, King Arthur of your band, you know, for all these years, and you've had to go through this process where you've had to accept that, like, you have a problem, you can't deal with it on your own. Like that's going to affect your approach and confidence on stage, you know? And, um, I don't know. I think in a lot of ways, that we're all better for it, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I definitely agree. Um, you know, it's cool to, you know, think about all this stuff and uh, yeah, I just, it, it's, it's, we can speculate all day, but at the end of the day, it's just, you know, we got to be so happy that this incredible band is still playing at this level 38 years in. And it's, it's just, it, I think it's funny now how unreasonably high all of our expectations are going into every show just because of how well they've been playing. Like even the, the Sacramento tour opener, which people are saying like, ah, like had some flow issues, you know, a little bit of uh, disconnect 
for the first show. Mm-hmm. Throw that in a tour from like 2011, best show of the year, easily. Yeah. So it, it's they're playing at such a high level now, and you know, seeing finally, like you know, I've been saying that 3.0 is the best era of fish since like 2013, and I've I like to say I've only been right since 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's cool. And I, I never thought, you know, I, I talk about fall 2018 incessantly and I never thought I would, they would play another tour that would eclipse that. But I think this year has finally beat that for me. Obviously, you know, the year needs to finish out and I need a little more time to digest and think about it. But I I think it, it really, you know, 2021 might be my new favorite year of fish ever. I think the the ground that they've covered this year, you know, the differences, uh, the differences in jamming spaces, like, you know, getting back to a lot of the dark jamming that we haven't seen mm-hmm. as much, like, you know, not just using like, you know, people a lot of year, like 2015 as being incredible. But I think a lot of the jams that year use um, a very predictable, you know, bliss jam, uh, you know, major modulation shift. Yeah. Um, that's very frequent and a lot of the set lists are very predictable. Um, and I, and that's something again that I mentioned earlier about the set list unpredictability, of this tour, you know, it's just anything can happen at any time. And it's, it's awesome. You know, the, the LA woman bust out on Sunday night, uh, first time played since 1230 Right. Crowd went nuts. Right. Like it's, it's just stuff like that. Anything totally. can be played. Nothing yeah, is off like, the table. Like 1999 at the powder show, you know, it's yeah. just like, like what, you know? Yeah. And that's, I mean, yeah, that's what just makes it so special. Totally. And tying it back to our uh, topic at hand, uh, the resurgence of the Halley's jam mm-hmm. uh, in the last couple of years, a little bit, you know, it was basically non-existent in the 3.0 era. I think there was one or two in the first couple of years. And then Halley's was relegated to like a five minute song until uh halloween 2018 uh when it was jammed out a little bit and then at the end of 2019 they started taking it out again and so seeing this this hershey version this year and you know i'm, I'm hoping on the horizon we've got another 20 minute hallies coming up because it, it's such a good jam vehicle you know evidenced by all the amazing 1.0 versions like the hampton one you picked um and I, I think the hershey one from this year is just a taste of what the song can do yeah. Hey, I hope you're right. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this, this feels like a good place to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being on uh, the podcast today, Joel. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, man. Uh, it's been great to nerd out. It's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you soon. Hopefully seeing the lizards again soon as well. Yeah, we're working on we're working on a Toronto show now, too. And um, actually, I should plug that we're we're going to be releasing an album. Ooh. Yeah. So, um, tell. so last March, uh, it was like the height of COVID. We were like in our, in our sort of third wave time here in Toronto. And, um, our drummer Ben was able to get us some free studio time. And I was just like, why don't we just go into a studio for two days and just jam, like not even play fish music, like just do improvised kind of psychedelic rock stuff. So, cause I, more than anything, I just needed a project so that I wouldn't go crazy because <laughs> I wasn't gigging. We were locked. We were in lockdown more or less. And um, so we just I just like we had I had like eight hours of jams and I just like slowly edited it and like edited the parts I liked and put them together and I mixed it myself. And we're just putting out a record of 
just jams. Amazing. When, um, when is that coming out? Probably around the same time we're going to hit the road. So look to like early December, like maybe even so we're gonna be, December 1st. This is going to be the, the album tour where you just play just jam sets in support <laughs> of the album? <laughs> I think we, I think people, rightly so, are expecting us to play fish music and we will deliver. It's more just like it's a... It's something that, you know, some of our fans might be interested in. And so we're Absolutely. just we're gonna have a CD at shows and we're just gonna we're gonna be like, Hey, if you like the way we jam, here's the lizards, just jams, volume one, you know. Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait to listen. Thank you so much again for being on today, Joel. And thank you all so much for listening. Hope you have a fantastic day. I will see you next time. Hey, music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com, for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.